This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Fighting Shadows, Overcoming Seven Lies That Keep Men From Becoming Fully Alive, written and narrated by Jefferson Bethke and John Tyson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. You're listening to the End Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Yes, it is. Gotta spread the word. With your no good and camp, you're listening to Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me. And this is a special episode. Uh, this is an episode that is somewhat new, but hopefully it'll be something you'll get used to and enjoy as time goes on. What this is, is kind of a breakdown, a breakdown of a Supreme Court decision. And so I have a special guest on with us today, which is John Richards. John Richards is an attorney. We just had him on a, a few weeks ago. Y'all enjoyed it. You know, he's a, an attorney. He's a social engineer for Christ. He is an advocate, not an activist, an advocate. <laughs> he's a, a Morehouse graduate, a, a Howard graduate, and just a brother I really appreciate and enjoy going back and forth with. My man, how you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? Thanks for having me, sir. Yeah, man. Thanks. I'm glad you uh, were able to jump on. I know it was a short notice, man, but we always appreciate your voice and people really appreciated what you had to say last time you were on here, man. Uh, and so this is going to be interesting, man. Just getting chances. You know, we're we're we've been in the lab. We got some special things that we'll be announcing to the crowd soon. And you've been part of that process. Uh, but I really think it's just so necessary for us, you know, especially when Supreme Court cases and major things come down for Christians to get a breakdown. What usually mm-hmm. happens, John, and you know this, you listen to CNN, you listen to MSNBC or you listen to Fox News or whatever. And that's just your opinion right there. Right. You like one of the people that's on there and whatever they say kind of goes. And I think it can flatten what really needs to be a more co- complicated and broad conversation. Any thoughts about just the information we receive and why these co- these conversations are important? Yeah, I think that, you know, the polarized nature of that information requires that we as believers do some serious fact checking and digging as well so that we're able to arrive at what could be a biblical centric perspective on these issues without having these polarized talking points. I think that's that's a necessary practice for every believer, especially in today's culture, for sure. That's real. And it doesn't mean that we're all going to agree. It doesn't mean that me and John are always going to (laughs) agree. But I think there's a certain way to look at it, a certain honesty, right? Um, Certain ways to look at it that helps come from a, it helps to come from a Christian, you know, a Bible-centered, gospel-centered perspective, right? And that's really what we're trying to give you. So we are going to get into this conversation. Y'all know how we do over here. We, uh, We ask you to grab your Bible. We ask you to get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but think like a Christian. Let's get into it. Well, John, after what was really an almost unprecedented Supreme Court leak. It seems like everyone is focused on the Dobbs v. Jackson case, which, of course, is the case they could overturn Roe versus Wade. Everybody's talking about it. People are nervous. People are anxious. People are trying to figure out what they're going to do afterwards, all this stuff. But the truth of the matter is, and that is high, you know, that's a important case. Let's, let's not uh, push that aside. 
But the truth of the matter is there are other highly consequential cases that the Supreme Court has been considering recently as well. And you and I today, John, are kind of going to get into one of that kind of we're going to get all the way into one of those those conversations. But I just want folks to know there's other cases out there that could impact you directly, too. So uh, just be paying attention to that. But let me kind of let me start by saying this. I want to give a little bit of context and we'll see what John thinks. I found that the separation between church and state is probably one of the most misunderstood and maybe perhaps rhetorically manipulated constitutional concepts there is. Right. The actual U.S. Constitution doesn't say the words separation of church and state. It's not in there. You can look. Check it out. You're not going to find it. What it does do is that the, the First Amendment does provide us with two things. The Establishment Clause and the free exercise clause. And from those clauses, you get the concept of separation between church and state, which I do think is very important, right? I'm not against the separation, that concept, but I want y'all to understand the concept. So when you look at the establishment clause, basically the establishment clause is saying that the government cannot establish a religion, right? There can be no uh, equivalent in the U.S. to the Church of England. Again, that's a good thing. Um, then you have the free exercise clause and the free exercise clause is basically saying that they cannot, the government cannot infringe on citizens free exercise of religion. They can't come in your church, to tell you stop clapping. They can't shut down your church for no reason, just because they don't like you or your mosque or whatever. Right. So free exercise clause establishment clause, the separation of church and state doesn't mean that there can be no interaction whatsoever between religious organizations and the state. Um, it doesn't mean that people of faith can't apply their values and their beliefs in the public square. That is not what that means. And if you read anything from the founders, that's not what they were talking about. I've even heard people and even people in high places. <laughs> I've heard people in high places say things like, you know, the anti-abortion stance comes from religious belief. Therefore, it can't be applied in the public square. Well, if you think about it. Thou shall not steal. Thou shall not murder. They happen to be religious beliefs as well. Right. Uh, that doesn't mean that they can't become a law. Now, they certainly can't be established just based on the fact that they're religious. Right. But that doesn't mean they can't be a part of the law because they happen to be a tenant within a religion. All right. So I, I want to put that out there because the case we're talking about, uh, Carson v. Macon, deals with uh, that conversation. Before we get into the before we get into the facts of the case. John, any thoughts just on the separation between church and state and the misunderstanding thereof? Yeah, I think we tend to take buzzwords and make them legal principles. And a lot of people in our culture do that. And that idea of separation of church and state, as you mentioned, isn't actually in the Constitution. What the Constitution says is um, the court is going to have to deal with this dance between establishing religion and not being able to do so based on constitutional exclusion in the First Amendment, and then also allowing citizens to be able to freely exercise their religion. Uh, you know, we both know that historic case, uh, Tinker versus Des Moines, where a student, group of students came to school wearing black patches to, um, to actually um, say that they were against Vietnam and the court, the court ultimately said that students don't shed their constitutional rights to free speech uh, and expression at the schoolhouse gate. So over the history, we've seen the court kind of deal with those two principles 
and weigh them against each other. But separation of church and state certainly <laughs> isn't something that is etched in stone in terms of what the legal principle is. People have to understand what the First Amendment actually says in order to apply it properly. Exactly. And it also comes into play when you're talking about relief efforts. When you have Christian organizations or other religious organizations coming in and giving relief and there may be some interaction or even funds when it comes coming from the government to make that happen because those mo- uh, mediating institutions are in a good position to kind of get some of that work done. You want that interaction. You don't want the establishment of a religion. You don't want them infringing on your free exercise. Very important to knowing, guys, this is what I'm telling you. This is what separates an informed voter, an informed citizen from somebody who's just repeating talking points. That's why we're here. That's what we're trying to provide. But let's go ahead and get into these facts. So, again, we got the Carson v. Macon case. All right. And it involved a challenge to Maine's uh, town tuitioning program. All right. Now, unlike many states in Maine, towns are primarily responsible for education. But in Maine, a lot of towns are so small that they simply can't maintain a public school system or it's not efficient, it wouldn't make sense for them to maintain their own public school system. So they basically have two options. They can send the kids to schools in the next town, right? That they say, hey, you all have to go to this particular school or schools in the the next town. Or uh, they can basically give the kids vouchers and allow them to go to any private school they want to. Well, sort of any private school they want to, right? Maine's tuition system was set up in 1873. And when it was first set up, my understanding is that they allowed kids to choose religious schools, schools that give religious instruction or sectarian schools. That was the case until 1980, when the ACLU pushed Maine's attorney general to issue issue an opinion on the matter. The AG issues an opinion on the matter. Um, and it basically and it, and what the AG said was that giving money giving state money to religious schools violated the establishment clause, which we just talked about, of the Constitution. At that point, religious schools were excluded from the program. And many of the religious schools, I wouldn't say many, some of the religious schools in the state had to close. I don't know exactly how many, so I don't want to overstate it. But some schools were first forced to close. Years later, you have two families that file a lawsuit claiming that the exclusion of religious schools from the private school choice program violated the free exercise clause. So you have somebody, and this is the, the dance that, that, we, that, that John was referring to, you have uh, the AG and the ACLU saying, no, giving these, these schools money violates the, um, the establishment clause. Then you have some other folks coming back say, no, not giving them, giving it to everybody else and not giving it to them violates uh, the free exercise clause. And so this is the fact pattern. This is the case that the court ruled on on Tuesday. And let me tell you what the court had to say. The Supreme Court on Tuesday ruled that Maine violated the Constitution when it refused to make public funding available for students to attend schools that provide religious instruction. The opinion, which was written by Chief Justice John Roberts, was a broad ruling. And that, that's interesting. You, you got to know that. So some rulings are very narrow. And so it only applies to these set of facts and just a little beyond that. This is a broad ru- ruling. This is going to pr- apply broadly to a lot of d- different situation situations when it comes to funding and, and schools. OK. Um, and maybe beyond schools. All right. Um, but he basically he said that uh, 
that they must be allowed. This broad ruling made very clear that when a state and local government choose to subsidize private schools, they must allow families to use taxpayer funds to pay for religious schools. So what was happening is you could go to any private school you wanted to. It could be a prep school. It could be, you know, whatever you want to do, except the religious schools. All right. Roberts said that's a violation, a violation of the free exercise clause. Roberts explained that Maine, that, uh, Roberts explained Maine pays tuition for some students to attend private schools as long as the schools are not religious. That, Roberts stressed, is discrimination against religion. Saying that Maine offers a benefit limited to private secular education is just another way of saying that Maine does not extend tuition assistance payments to parents who choose to educate their children at religious schools. So that is the holding of the case. That's part of the reasoning behind the case. What are your thoughts, uh, John? Yeah, I think I think the court said that the state doesn't have to subsidize private education, right? But when they decide to do it, so this is an opening the door uh, conversation, right? So once the state decides to open up uh, private education subsidies, then you cannot disqualify some private schools based solely on the fact that they are religious schools. And so that was the the main premise of that particular holding, because uh, what you found in Maine and what I found interesting was that they could like they could actually try to go to schools out of state and also international schools, as long as they uh, adhere to the accreditation principles of um, of the law that was there in, in the state of Maine. So so I think that with the court, as they're working through this, they're thinking about, you know, thinking about the schools themselves, being that Maine has a lot of rural schools and these parents are actually making the choice. Now, one of the clear distinctions that I saw as I was reading the opinion was that they were actually saying that the parents themselves were using the vouchers. So it wasn't necessarily a state action, right? So this is their free exercise of their religion being able to take advantage of this particular program to tell the state where the funds go, as opposed to the state being the state actor doing it. And that's a big difference in terms of public um, public accommodations and then public schools, because if the state itself had acted in that way, then I think the argument on the other side would have been stronger. But now that you have the parents being able to allot those funds themselves uh, per the law, then I think that uh, there is much more leeway here for the court to make a broad. Touching, I'm, I'm handing it right back to you because that's such an excellent point that I, I want to point out. So, so what he's saying is if the state gave the money directly to the schools and there was no parent in between there making a choice of where they wanted to go, that may be a closer case to say maybe this is an establishment, right? Mm. This In this case, the state isn't creating the school. The state isn't just saying, I, I'm go- definitely giving money to this religious private school. The state is giving the money to the parent. The parent is then making the decision of where they want their kid to go. Sorry, John, go ahead. No, 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 no. I think that that is a, certainly a clear distinction. So in light of because the court's been dealing with this uh, free exercise of religion clause uh, the past several years, and I'm pretty sure we'll get into this. So I think that this case aligns with where they've been headed the entire time and that this program um, has some interesting nuances that we can get into. But I, I, I felt like the court made the decision that they've been making around free exercise of religion for the past several uh, court sessions, for sure. 
Yeah, I mean, you mentioned you have the Trinity Lutheran Church case and some other cases that were headed in this direction. Mm -hmm. This shouldn't have been a huge surprise to people who have been paying attention to what's going on here. Um, And and, and again, while we know, and we're going to talk about this being a little more conservative court, while we know this is somewhat a conservative court, the court, even outside of this court, right? So this, there's a court that sent it. They're, they're agreeing with the, the court below them to say, yeah, this is, you know, this is a violation here. There's other cases that they've ruled on uh, that have come up to this basic same conclusion. Now, here what we get, though, is a Supreme Court decision, Supreme Court holding with a broad scope on an issue that's going to, I mean, it's going to play in a lot of different conversations. So we need to be, you know, we need to be thinking of what this application looks like. I kind of want to even, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds because we, we don't have a whole, you know, a whole lot of attorneys that are listening to us right now. But I do want to talk about kind of the political implications here. You and I are both in progress, somewhat progressive spaces, right? When you're in a progressive space, the, the, we understand that this is a pretty conservative court. And so if you're listening to any progressive commentary, you're going to basically hear whatever this court comes up with that everybody don't agree on, progressives should be against it, right? We just don't. Maybe you feel that way if you kind of follow behind the progressive movement in that way. And, and we talked about how some of us do that. I think it's a little more complicated than that for people who might be in progressive spaces, but have conservative values. First of all, I think I agree with you. I think this I think this was a solid decision. I don't think this was a, a bad decision. But what I want to get people away from is the idea because you have conservative justices, their jurisprudence is always going to come out in a way that adversely affects people who aren't ideologically conservative. And I want people who are kind of in both spaces to see you got to look at the actual case. You got to look at each case and decide if this was the right decision or not and not allow talking heads, cable news, talk radio and all that stuff to make you decide this was a bad case. And you don't even know your kids go to religious schools and you don't even know that this actually was a solid decision. You're just focused on the ideology of the justices and some of their other jurisprudence and not focus on this particular case. Hmm. Talk to me a little bit, if, if you can, J- John, about why it's important to really just look at the case and take it case by case, because the merits are are, all, are usually very different. They are very different. I mean, if we look back at Locke versus Davey, 2003, and this is important to me because I'm a seminary graduate and went to seminary. So uh, I followed that case pretty closely because it was a Washington State case that had a tuition scholarship for students. Uh, the lone exception were for those who wanted to obtain a degree in theology if the program was called to taught to quote unquote create belief. So this young man applied for the scholarship. He didn't get it because he was going through this theology program. Well, uh, the court held and ruled for the state in that instance because they said that it didn't quote unquote suggest animus towards religion by excluding the theology degree in that case. So to your point, they ruled narrowly there. So if anyone goes through a state tuition program that has uh, an exception for a theology degree, then the court's probably going to uphold that particular ruling. But this is more broad in this instance, in, in this instance where you have public schools and you have the parents themselves choosing the program. So it's very important for us to look at each case, look at the facts of each case, and then see how the court handles each one of those. 
That's good. That's good. And, and what about the fact, I mean, how do you handle the idea that generally in more progressive spaces, just in the cities we're in or whatever, mm. um, there's going to be the feeling that whatever this court comes down with is wrong. Mm. Like, why should Christians avoid uh, looking at this court or jurisprudence in general in that way? Well, because I think, as you mentioned, I think that we... Uh, although we operate in progressive spaces, there are certainly conservative positions that we adhere to that the court's decision making may actually benefit our positions, our particular bes- positions. So I think that as we're looking at these free exercise of religion clauses, it also impacts a variety of other areas it could potentially impact. Right. So we have uh, instances where we're talking about the Christian Baker case in Colorado where uh, a baker has refused to um, provide a wedding cake for an LGBT couple. Uh, that, that court, that case has been decided, but then turned around and he was sued by someone who's a transgender who wanted a cake that was blue on the outside and pink on the inside. And so now he's going through those instances. And as someone who's part of the clergy, I think it's important for us to think through those really, really um, in a nuanced way, because, um, the next step could possibly be the uh, jeopardization of the 501c3 status or um, housing allowances for clergy members because that's a federal program for federal programming for folks who are part of religious organizations. And I fear my, my biggest fear is that if a clergy allowance goes away, then that's going to deeply impact the church um, in ways that are going to be seismic shifts in how we do ministry. And so we have to look at these cases in a way that shows our broader understanding of what free exercise looks like, and then look and see how that might impact the broader understanding there. Yeah, and, I, and I'll say this, uh, when it comes to that clergy allowance, um, Chris Butler, who is the co-host on this show, y'all know, has been at the forefront of that conversation. He's worked with Beckett, uh, Beckett Fund and all those folks too really speak into that because that would have a dev- devastating impact on a lot of clergy. So what we're asking you, what we're telling you right now, in, in addition to giving you this information, is be able to look at it with nuance. I've been in too many circles where if this comes up around folks who are, I you know, um, theologically conservative that just assume every case that this court comes out with, they're going to dislike. Why do they assume that? Because they've been watching progressive uh, cable news or they've been listening to, to progressive uh, radio. It's way deeper than that. We've got to think through this and look at this case. Now, I'll tell you this. There's some things that I'm a little suspicious of that they might come out with. Right. Like I'm a little suspicious of where they're going to come out on labor issues, where they're you know, what I'm saying there's there's plenty of things that I'm like, yeah, I'm not sure this court is going to come out where I want them to come out. However, in trying to be a thoughtful citizen, I need to take it case by case and not just make that assumption. That's the message that you're getting uh, from us today. All right. Look at the actual case, because having a more conservative Supreme Court, you might not like the decision every time, but there might be some decisions that are fair and right. And here's the other thing, John. It ain't just about us liking the decision. There might be bad decisions that I was like, man, I, you know, I kind of wanted it to come out that way, but that's actually not a good decision. Right. I think this is a solid decision. And I think for folks who are theologically conservative, for Christians in general, you ain't got to be theologically conservative. This is something that speaks to some things we go through and can be helpful 
don't just make the assumption, but I'm going to hand it to John. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I also think, I mean, one of the other things I was thinking about, Justin, as I was reading this case is the historical reality behind much of what we're talking about in terms of school choice and tuition programs and voucher programs, right? Because historically in our country, post-Reconstruction, you know, we really didn't have a public school system per se. Many folks were um, we're moving into this private space and funding private school education for white students. And um, yep. post Brown, the same thing happened, like this perpetuation of segregation through the private school sector. So um, even in light of this confer- conversation, we also still need to think more broadly because what does that do for Brown? What does that do for uh, the idea of integration? Because the truth of the matter is today, when you look at private schools, when you look at other schools, they're going to be majority white in majority white context. So when we're thinking through equity, thinking about issues of justice and issues of desegregation and what Brown stands for, then cases like this also touch on that, at least tangentially, if not directly. And we really got to think through all of those issues together. It certainly is a coalition of issues that come together around these cases. Exactly. That's a very good point. And and for those of you who who aren't as familiar, when Brown versus Board of Education came down, all of a sudden um, (laughs) you had a lot of Christian schools being created, which many would believe was a way to have uh, many white people avoid having their kids to have to be integrated in schools with black people. So you have all these and some of those are still running. You have all these schools created during that time. Now, maybe some would say it's a coincidence. I think not. But I'm glad that you brought that up because that is tied. The history of that, we got to put it in historical context, is tied to the conversation we're having now. Man, this has been a good conversation. I know we could go on forever. Anything else you want to leave the people with before we get out of here? I think one of the other things that we really got to be on the lookout for in light of these free exercise cases is the one that's before the court now um, with Coach Joe Kennedy. Um, some people may be familiar with it, but it's a coach um, who would kneel and pray uh, after games, initially started doing so uh, alone by himself, but then invited players to do so. Uh, he was asked to stop. He decided not to. And uh, players continued to pray with him. He was later let go. So now that case is before the court. Uh, same issue. It's going to be free exercise of religion um, in that space. So they've had oral arguments already. The decisions are going to come down this summer. I'm very interested to see what this court does with this particular case and how it might impact um, other aspects of um, of this particular constitutional provision. Yeah. Some tells me, obviously, this is decision season. They're coming down with decisions. We'll probably hear, you know, something. If not before you hear this, there might be a You know, the decision might come out. It was already it was leaked. But decision on uh, whether Roe versus Wade is going to be overturned might come out. Some tells me y'all be hearing us from us again within the next couple of weeks. Right. So this is something that we want to do more often just to inform you. All right. So if you like what we're doing, holla at us. You can hit us up on the uh, you can go to our, our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash church politics. Show us some love, man. Uh, we're trying to bring this to you. And we again, we are in the lab. We're cooking something up for you that I think you guys are really, really going to appreciate. So support us. Become a part of the movement. Don't just stand on the sidelines. We need you. This is a whole church movement, not just us. Again, my brother, thank you so much for joining us. This was a great uh, conversation. I look forward to doing it again, bro. Appreciate you, man.
All right. Now, and camp, you know what it is. There is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Kemp. Holla. Kingdom. Kingdom. Oh, Lord. I said, Kingdom. Kingdom.